Our speakers, each of our two speakers have six sessions. For many of you, Dr. Ross is a former professor and mentor. For others, you have read his some of his books or some of his commentaries. Those of you who have used the Bible Knowledge Commentary, he is the author of the commentary on the Psalms in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. He is uh, he was my, one of my professors in the Old Testament department at Dallas. When I went back working on my doctorate in the late 80s, I audited several courses uh, that he w- that he taught because he was away at Cambridge working on his second doctorate when uh, uh, when I first started at Dallas Seminary. We are glad to have him. He is a noted scholar, and his 50 years plus of ministry uh, teaching the Old Testament, teaching through the Psalms, has given him a depth of understanding in the biblical teaching on worship that I believe surpasses just about anything that is that I have run across or anything that I have read in print. And so I'm very thankful to have him here to uh, teach us and to take us through the word because I believe worship must develop out of a sound biblical theology, a sound biblical exegesis. So I'm going to have Dr. Ross come up to teach. How long do I have here? <laughs> I always ask that question. We have about an hour. I'm not sure when the break takes. The introduction took a little longer. Oh, we don't want to miss the break. You have one hour. Okay, good, good. I always ask that because I was invited to go down to Memphis to speak at a, an Anglican church on Sunday, Easter Sunday morning. And I went down and they... I went down Friday. They wined and dined me, the best of Memphis and so on. And when I got to the church on Sunday morning, we were in the sacristy getting ready to go in and process into the sanctuary. It just dawned on me I probably ought to ask, how long do I have to speak? He said, seven minutes. <laughs> I thought I probably could have done that on the telephone, but, <laughs> but I was glad to be there. They had got some good restaurants. <laughs> I didn't bring a lot of books. I I don't have a lot of books that, you know, when you write them, they might the company might give you a complimentary copy, and the rest I can buy at a reduced price. So I didn't I don't usually carry a lot of books with me. I did bring the uh, Leviticus commentary. Robbie asked me to bring mine because he didn't um, have his available, and so I have it, but it's in the hotel. But I'll bring it tomorrow. Um, and I have a lot of the books that I've done have been translated. I just got a copy the other day in the mail before I came that the um, Malachi conference, uh, commentary has now been translated into Korean. Uh, the Psalms are all in Korean. The uh, Genesis is in Chinese and Hindi and whatever. I have nothing to do with that, so don't uh, credit me. They just inform me afterwards that they did it. But uh, they are available. The grammar, if you're interested, is available in Portuguese. Uh, you can learn Portuguese while you're studying Hebrew and, you know, <laughs> do, do the two together. 
Let us uh, uh, begin just with a brief word of prayer. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I shall be speaking these sessions in the conference, of course, on worship, but with the basic theme of sacrifice. And so I shall be starting today with the passage in Genesis 22, and you may turn there in our Father's Word. Um, But I want to make a few comments first that fit with the whole theme, basically. Um, I I really am thrilled to have this opportunity. It's... it's, um, a real challenge to be speaking with uh, people who are actively in ministry and have been for years. I remember the first time that I was exposed to this kind of a thing. I was actually I was just a second-year student in seminary, and uh, Bruce Walkey had a Bible class at First Baptist of 300 doctors. And uh, he was going out of town one day, and he said he wanted to know if I would substitute for him in this class. Well, you know, all right, you don't say no. And then he added, oh, by the way, they don't know you're coming. So when it's time to speak, just get up and tell them who you are and start. Um, So ever since that time, uh, I I don't expect uh, many surprises, but once in a while I get them like that, and uh, it seemed to work okay because, after all, he never left town. I looked out in the class, and he was sitting on the back row listening to the... So a little bit intimidating, but that was back then, many years ago. The spirit of worship is sacrifice. Always has been from the very beginning. Not just the sacrificial offerings that were made, the sacrifices that people gave when they went to the sanctuary, But everything about their worship was supposed to be sacrificial. And we talk about sacrificial giving and sacrificial service and so on. And while it is a nice word to throw around, it is a costly word. It's a very inconvenient um, practice to sacrifice. It sometimes uh, demands much more than we anticipated. But uh, we are called to do that, and all of our worship is based on the greatest and costliest sacrifice, which was the sacrifice that Christ made for us, showing us an example, Peter says, of how we should uh, suffer and serve in the Lord's place. In worship in the Old Testament, I started teaching the course early on. It was worship in Israel. And then the deans of that seminary decided that that wasn't enough. I should expanded and teach worship in the Bible. But they didn't give me any more hours to do it, so I still had to squeeze it in, but eventually it moved it up a little bit. I got to Beeson, and they said, well, that's not enough. Uh, Why don't you throw in ecclesiology as well? So you can cover ecclesiology and all of biblical worship and and, uh, make that one solid course. That was a logical choice. I mean, it goes hand in hand, but... uh, I had to talk faster to get it into three hours. But there are five constituent parts that make up worship. 
There is prayer, and there is praise, and there is the Word of God, and there is proclamation, and behind it all there is sacrifice. Sacrifice certainly means one specific thing, surrender. It means submission. It means that uh, you are relinquishing, you are giving up things that uh, sometimes can prove very costly and very inconvenient. And we're going to look today with the passage in Genesis 22 on the sacrifice of Isaac that Abram had to make. We'll have to fit that into the whole theology of sacrifice in a few moments. But the requirements for sacrifice, anything that anybody gives to God, whether Old Testament or New Testament, there are two requirements that uh, have to fit, whether it's your money, your service, your worship, whatever else you do. And those two requirements have been there from the very beginning. They are that what you give to God must be the first and it must be the best. No second-hand things, no leftovers, no convenience. It has to be the best. It has to be the first. You see that pattern working out extremely early in the Bible with Cain and Abel. It's subtle. You'll miss it if you're not looking for it. Uh, Abel brings a sacrifice, the firstborn of the fattest of his animals, the best and the first. Cain shows up to discharge a duty, and he hasn't gone out of his way to please God at all. And that pattern has set in all the way down through the history of Israel, and it applies today just as well. But the second major issue when we have to talk about sacrifice is is what is the essence, what is the central sign of sacrifice as it was revealed from Cain all the way through the Old Testament, and that is the blood. We could ask, and some people do ask, well, why did they have to shed blood that's so messy? Why not just strangle? Why not just drown the animal? Uh, something like that. But there's a very important issue why the blood is so important. And it's clearly taught in Leviticus. God created human beings. They have physical body, and they have a spirit. The spirit is within the body, and that's the whole person. But what keeps the body and the spirit together? According to Leviticus, it's the blood. You drain the blood from the animal, or if blood is drained from a human, the spirit leaves and the body begins to decompose almost immediately. That's why Leviticus makes it clear the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so it was always important that the sacrifices, the important sacrifices involved the shedding of blood. That was also picked up in all the pagan world, as you know, if you've studied the background of the Old Testament, but it was corrupted to be a very perverse way of sacrifice, and especially with many gods. It was also ruined by the corrupted Israelites who turned it into something less than what God had designed. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But today I want to focus on the sacrifice 
that God required from Abraham, that is to sacrifice his son in, uh, in a test. And so I think when you look at Genesis 22, there are three simple parts to it that make it very easy to follow. We first have the test that is explained to Abram. Um, and this is going to be a pattern for the rest of the Bible that God occasionally tests his people to see if they are faithful. Or to put it more particularly with Genesis 22, the test would be if God touches your life and your possessions and he seems to be doing everything you don't think he should be doing, will you still worship him? Will you still obey him, even if it seems unreasonable? Now, nobody is going to be tested like Abraham was ever again. He is tested to offer his son as a sacrifice. No one later could say, well, maybe God told me to do that. Um, No, because the Bible made it very clear that child sacrifice, human sacrifice was not correct. No one could ever do that and say it. And we know by the fact that this text says it was a test, God never intended Abram to do it. But he didn't know. Uh, you know, this is only a test, uh, <laughs> kind of like our fire drills in high school. You know, this is, we knew it wasn't counting. But uh, no, it wouldn't be a test if he was told it was a test. So let me read the three or four verses that are the test and I'll make a couple of observations. As with anybody who works with exegesis, and you're always cautious about translations, and I will frequently change the translation here or there. I'm reading from the NIV. I will change things when I think I need to make it a little more clear. And uh, I say that because I have to change the very first clause. (laughs) Uh, The NIV says, um, sometime later, the text says, after these things which is much more thought-provoking because you have to ask, after what things? You know, if you wanted to say a few years later, a little, you could say that. But after what things? And I picked this up from reading a very famous Jewish rabbi's midrash on the passage. And he made a very plausible connection. Very recently, in the text of the Bible, Abraham had sent Ishmael away, the son of the slave wife. He loved Ishmael, and uh, he was his son, but he was willing to send him away. And now God will come to Abram and say, what about this other son? Are you willing to give him to me if I ask? And that made the test a lot more painful because uh, Ishmael was gone, and now is it going to be Isaac? But we're told that after these things, God tested Abraham. A lot of testing goes on in the Bible. Uh, If God tests people, it's because they need to be examined as to the strength of their faith. If people test God, as they did for 40 years in the wilderness, uh, it's because there's a weakness in their faith, not God's abilities. And uh, therefore, it was, uh, it was wrong. But if God tests people, it is giving them an opportunity to demonstrate that they are strong in the faith. God knows how they will turn out. 
they need to know. And so the test is going to be designed to be difficult for Abraham, but it's going to be one that will vindicate his strong faith. Keep in mind, he is not a new believer here. He has walked with the Lord for probably 50 years by the time he wandered without Isaac being born, and then Isaac now is probably a mature young man. And so it's time for this final test. Have you learned enough over these 50 years? Have you have you developed not head knowledge or acquaintances and things like that, but over the 50 years, have you learned to trust him more? Have you learned to rely upon him more? Have you learned to be faithful and obedient to his word? Because a lot of people trust until they get what they want. And when they get what they want, uh, they go home. Uh, They can enjoy. They can live. But uh, they've already received the possession, and here it's going to be the promised son And so what does God do? He's going to make this very difficult for Abram. Just look at the words. Take your son, your only son, the one that you love, Isaac. I mean, talk about laying it on pretty thick, you know, just really opening up the pain and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt sacrifice on one of the mountains that I will show you. If you know your Bible well, the chronicler will tell you that Mount Moriah is in Jerusalem. It is the mountain which later would have the temple and and uh, today the center, third most holy place in Islam. Uh, but it's in that region, one of those hills, the ancient seat of Melchizedek, uh, who was the king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God. So Abram has been in that region before, but not under these terms. And under these terms, he will go. But God not only makes it difficult for him to obey the test, but he helps him. Because he says, you go and you sacrifice your son on one of the mountains that I will show you. And that probably clicked in the minds of, in the mind of Abram. I've heard this before. You go somewhere and I will show you where you're supposed to go. Because in the call of Abram in Genesis 12, he's very specific. You're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be here. Well, where am I supposed to be? I'll show you. You step out by faith. And I think Abram probably thought, well, I've had a command like this before, not to do this, but uh, I trusted him then, I trust him now. And so Abram will obey this command from the Lord, even though it seemed totally out of character with what he thought the Lord should be. And it seemed totally out of character what the requirement was, because when he goes up to Mount Moriah, he knows two things clearly. Number one, the future of the covenant people is with Isaac. And number two, he's going to sacrifice him. Now, he can't harmonize those things. There's a lot in the Bible we can't harmonize. We, we tell people we can, but we can't. Uh, there are a lot of things that we say, well, <laughs> they're both true. They're both true, but uh, there's a apparent conflict there. And here, uh, with Abram, 
he is going to obey immediately. Text doesn't say anything about Sarah. I don't know if he told her where they were going for the days or not. I doubt it, but this is basically Abram's immediate obedience. So he has the call. He knows what he is supposed to do. It's not going to be an easy task, but he has learned to trust God's word, that God knows what he's doing. It's almost, it's almost like God says, trust me, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> you don't. You don't need to. That's not the way faith works. But he will leave. And so in the middle of this passage, we have the detailing of Abram's obedience because faithful people will obey the Lord no matter what. And sometimes it seems very difficult. Sometimes it seems impossible. Sometimes it seems not to be what you think or I think God should be doing. But if the word of the Lord tells us what to do, we must obey. This is, of course, assuming that we are interpreting it correctly, um, understanding the nature of the text. So Abram knows that this is what he must do. And so the central part of the passage will give us the details of this trip. And I don't want to spend a great deal of time here, but just to make a couple of things clear as we go through it. So we read, early the next morning, Abram got up, saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And uh, when he had cut enough of the wood for the burnt sacrifice, uh, he set out for the place God had told him about. He is going from Beersheba uh, to the place of Mount Moriah. Uh, it's, it's, it's doable as a walk. Um, <laughs> some of you have been to Israel. I had a friend who took a lot of college students on trips to Israel and uh, like herding cats, I guess. Um, they never showed up on time for the bus. They never showed up when they were supposed to be in the right place. So he gave the announcement that we're here in Beersheba. He says, if you don't get back by the time our bus leaves, we're leaving without you, and you can find your way to Jerusalem. And they never thought he would do it, but he did. And about midnight, some of the students came trekking in off the desert or hitchhiking or whatever, showed up in Jerusalem. Um, they weren't late again. but uh, <laughs> So he's going to walk on this journey. So on the third day, Abram looked up and saw the place from the distance. He lifts his eyes and he sees the place. Now the, now the trip gets harder. It's one thing to be carrying along the way and, you know, you're heading for Moriah. And uh, now he's close enough. He sees it. It's, it's, it reminded me a lot of the New Testament where Jesus was... Turning his turning his sights on Jerusalem, lifting his gaze for there, and that that would be ominous. But here he sees it, sees the place from a distance. Uh, he said to the servants, "Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go up there. We will worship in order that we may come back again to you." Um, a lot of these clauses need to be translated in their sequence and their connections. But there's something happens in the narrative, and you can't see it in the English, I am sorry. It's a very good method of narrative and literature. That is excessive use of the conjunction and. 
uh, you might say, well, so what? Well, the effect of having and, and, and every step, it slows down the action. It makes you take each step deliberately as Abram must have been. It's not with such eagerness now he's got to leap in his walk and he can't wait to get up to Moriah. No, this is not an ordinary trip to Moriah. So it's taking him a little longer, going a little slower, thinking about it a little bit more. We will never know until we ask him what was going on in his mind. But writers have written about this for ages. What what was he thinking? What was going on in his mind? And uh, I don't try to do too much of that speculation because... I simply don't know. And if it, if I did it, I'd be making up something that may not actually be in there. Um, preachers are good at that. They like to fill in all the details, you know, tell you things, and then they don't have time to deal with the real important things in the text. But uh, it uh, makes a good storytelling. I was watching one guy on TV. I hate watching preachers on TV, but I was watching one. <laughs> I was in a town in... Uh, in Tyler, Texas, I uh, was where I was staying, and in the morning before I went to the church, I had the television on. This guy, one guy was going to preach on the story of Joseph. I thought, oh, good, one one sermon on the story of Joseph. <laughs> and he actually started the uh, sermon by saying, it's a long story, I won't bore you with the details. <laughs> and so he started talking about something totally unrelated, and uh, and not, all of it was just uh, his imagination, but never did get back to the text. But here, Abram starts slowly toward Moriah, leaves the servants behind, and he's got Isaac, his son. Give Isaac some spiritual credit in here. He's old enough to run for it. He's old enough to throw himself off the altar and bolt from that place but no, he is, um, he's obedient to his father, who is obedient to the Lord, and he's not quite sure where this is going, but it's going to be his, uh, his willingness as well. But along the way, he says, Father, Abram says, yes, my son. He said, uh, well, here's the fire and here's the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? A fundamental question anybody would ask if you're going to go make a sacrifice. Where's the lamb? Now, the next line is a little tricky to translate. A couple of ways you could translate it, but Abram answered, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. For, for, for God's going to take care of that, but it's worded. He's going to provide the lamb for himself, or he's going to himself provide a lamb, or he will provide himself a sacrifice. All are possible, and we really don't know at this point, because narrative literature, like if you're reading Genesis, all of it begins to unfold. It doesn't tell you up front all the details. You keep working through through, through the passage, and, and it's like you were there and gradually beginning to see things and understand uh, what was at stake. But this is satisfactory to Isaac, and so they carried on. And when they reached the place God had told him about, Abram built an altar um, there, and he arranged the wood, and the fire, and so on. Then he bound his son Isaac, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. 
And it's at that moment where the Lord will step in. But in this second section, he is certainly going through with it, complete obedience. He doesn't have his knife up in the air waiting and looking around for God to say, not yet, not do that. No, he's ready to sacrifice his son. The word binding here, he bound his son, is interesting in its use in rabbinic theology. This is referred to, this whole story is referred to in Jewish literature as the Akedah, A-Q-E-D-A-H, Akedah, because the verb akad is to bind. And they always refer to this chapter as the binding of Isaac, but with this meaning, that every time that a sacrifice was offered in Jerusalem, God remembered Isaac. Meaning that God was remembering, and they should too, that the animal was substituted for the person, which they understood about the animal sacrifices that were there. When an Israelite brought a sacrifice to the sanctuary, the priest did not kill the animal. Uh, the worshiper did. And the worshiper, now, I know this is squeamish to people who have never seen a cow, but uh, they are working with animals all the time. But when they come to the sanctuary, he would have to place his right hand on the head of the animal and with the other hand slit the throat of the animal. All the priest would do there would be, with a basin, capture the blood so that it could be handed up the steps of the altar and stashed against the high altar. That animal then would crumple to the ground, and a worshiper who really understood this requirement, he didn't see where it was going in the New Testament, but he understood the theology. He would be in his own mind saying, that should be my body lying on the ground that should be my blood in that basin. But God said you can give a sacrifice that is a substitute. You can have an animal, but it better be the best. And it better be the first and all this ritual that is there. And you better be in the right spiritual condition to do it. So they knew that this was going to be a substitute. And that had hit the hallmark for Israelite worship. And I'll come back to that in a moment, what's going on with this passage because you have to read this on a couple of levels. It is an event that occurred in the life of Abram. But unfortunately, that's where a lot of people stop with their interpretation. Because what is being done here are two more things. One is, it is laying out the pattern for Israelite worship for centuries to come. And I'll explain that a little bit more. But it's also laying out the vision of something even greater than the Old Testament that is about to come. So we'll get there. But right now, Abram is going up. He wants to perform the sacrifice, do what God asked him to do, which uh, he does, but God stops him in the middle. So now Abram can know this really was a test. And God will confirm that in a moment. So the third part of the passage, which is the most important of all this, is that we have the outcome of this, but it is the confirmation of Abram's faith and the certainty of the promises. God would never let him kill Isaac because the future of the covenant is at stake. God is very defensive of that covenant because it's based on promises that he made, and if it doesn't get carried through, then her, his word is worthless. 
It's the same when Abram goes down, first time he's in the land, down to Egypt in the time of the famine, lies about his wife Sarah. She's taken into the house of Pharaoh, and God plagues Pharaoh. Not because Abram is his faithful servant. No, at that point, that's not the reason that Abram is such a good chap, you know, that I'm going to bail him out. No, God's not going to let Abram screw up the covenant. He needs Sarah. He needs the wife. And so he will deliver them through great plagues to get Abram and Sarah out of that country. Here, God simply stops Abram, um, tells him not to do it. We're told that the angel of the Lord called out. Now, probably you have studied the Old Testament enough to know that the angel of the Lord is the Lord. Uh, That is pretty well demonstrated in the way that it's written in the scriptures. But we have to ask a step further, which is a kind of an interesting step to ask. Um, Who is the angel of the Lord? Well, we say the Lord, but who is the Lord? We're dealing now with a full revelation of the triunity of the Godhead. But as far as we know, the the Holy Spirit never appeared on earth in human form. And I'm sure we could make a good case that the Father never came to this planet in a human form. You're really dealing with these incidents in in the pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. He wouldn't at this time be called Christ. He wouldn't be called the Lord. He wouldn't be called Jesus. That's all in the incarnation. But it's interesting here that on this very spot, this is where he will be stopping Isaac, uh, sacrifice, won't let Abram go through with it. Gives him a ram caught in the thicket that he can offer that animal instead of his only son. And yet, a couple of uh, thousand years later, God will be offering his son instead of the animals on this very spot. So those connections within the uh, understanding of divine activity and divine revelation uh, are very important. But he stops him. Abraham, Abraham. He said, here am I. He said, do not lay a hand on your boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me. This is the angel of the Lord speaking, but... I know you fear God. You have not withheld your son from me. This is the Lord. Um, uh, You've not withheld your son, your only son. So Abram does not have to sacrifice his son. He looks around, as you know the story, and he sees a ram caught in the thicket there. So he takes that animal, and he will sacrifice that on the altar. This is going to be a little different kind of a sacrifice. Uh, We will be talking about them in the other passages that I'm dealing with because each one has different reasons. A burnt offering is an atoning sacrifice. That's That's the main one. But if he's offering this animal, it will be like Noah making the sacrifice after the flood. It's a thank offering. It's an offering of thanksgiving to God for his provisions And the provision is that he will give him the animal to sacrifice. This will become a pattern for Israel. Keep that in mind, and I'll come back to it in a few moments. So Abram took the ram, 
caught by the thorns, went over, took the ram, sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, and here your Bible could be doing a number of different things. The old King James had Jehovah Jireh. Well, if you want to stay with a better translation and pronunciation of Hebrew, it would be Yahweh Yira. If your Bible, like this one, the NIV, translates it, the Lord will provide. Um, but there's a... We have in, in the Bible a lot of cases where words are used with more than one meaning. Um, that's, that is actually a, a very legitimate figure of speech, a deliberate ambiguity. Not like students on a Hebrew exam. that It's not deliberate ambiguity. It's trying to cover the tracks. But it's not the same. Deliberate ambiguity is where God is saying one thing, but he's meaning two or three other things. Uh, that may be too much to try to think hermeneutically like that, but, but let me put it this way. When the Lord and his disciples were walking through Jerusalem and the, and the disciples kind of felt like they were on a guided tour because look at this beautiful building and all this city, whatever, and, and the Lord said uh, very simply, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And we are told that uh, afterwards the disciples understood he was talking about his own body and the resurrection well, why didn't he say that <laughs> why didn't he just say uh, but you know they're looking at the temple and so he he says destroy this uh, temple I will raise it up in three days this was uh, something that was brought up to condemn him at the trial but obviously building had been going on for decades what he is getting at is if the people of Israel, leaders, uh, kill Jesus. Uh, they will also have ended the temple because with the death of Christ, you never again need the temple in Jerusalem. So you if you destroy me, you destroy this temple. But in three days, I will raise it up, not this temple, but a new temple, which will be the temple of the Holy Spirit and the church. So this, you've got to look at those implications as well as the clear statements that are made to catch everything that that the Holy Spirit has in mind for us to see. So Abram calls this place, the NIV translates it, Yahweh will provide, the Lord will provide. It is the simple Hebrew verb to see. Uh, you could say, if I paraphrase the idea for providing, the Lord will see to it. It would be a way to say, carry it out or do it. Uh, but it was the same when he answered his son on the way up. God will provide himself or God will see to it because it's playing with this word to see, but in, a, in one of its many different connotations, uh, which would call for the idea of take care of it, see to it, provide for it. So he calls this place, the Lord will provide or the Lord will see to it, something along that line. Uh, this commemorates the event for Abraham that he brought me here and I didn't have to sacrifice my son. The Lord provided and he lays down this commemorative name. And when you see the commemorative names in the Bible, uh, whether it's Jacob's vision at Bethel or whatever it is, they always name the place something very significant. 
And that significance is not just so they can go home and tell Sarah, I named the place Jehovah Jireh. No, it's significant for centuries to come. And those places will usually always become places of worship for Israel. Jacob didn't know that Bethel was going to become a place where the ark would dwell for a couple of centuries. I'm not so sure how much Abram knew about this city because it's a Jebusite city. It's a Canaanite city. But he gives it a commemorative name for whoever wants to hear, whoever wants to know, and whoever will be coming there. The Lord will provide. But then he adds something very, very unusual. He gives a little proverb, a little saying. He says... He names this place, the Lord will provide. And uh, he says, to this day, he said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided, or it will be seen. Take your pick, which you like to translate it, seen or provided. On the mountain of the Lord, what mountain is he talking about? This is a little proverb. There's no Israelites living here. These are Jebusites but on the mountain of the Lord. It's, it's general enough that it would apply to any mountain. And where Moses is instructing the Israelites with all of these ancient stories to build up their understanding of why they shouldn't be in Egypt and why they have to go to Canaan, um, the mountain that they will go to will be Mount Sinai. And that proverb will fit there. On Mount Sinai, uh, it will be seen And uh, that's where the Lord met with Moses. Yet when they came into the land, it would be this mountain that God chose. And uh, therefore, the proverb would be fitting for Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. In this mountain, it it will be seen. It will be provided. This is the little proverb that is coming. And this gives us a window into what and how this passage was used within Israelite theology. And again, it really centers in the Pentateuch on this word to see. In the Exodus and in the book of Exodus, God commanded the Israelites that all the males and as many as the females who could go um, in the law, the women were bound to obey all the, as the rabbis say, all the thou shalt nots. But all of the positive commandments, thou shalt, if they're not time-related, um, they had the option to obey them or not. So it was a very clear specification. So it's not just saying only the men count. That, that idea grew up later. But the point is that three times a year, the text of the law tells the Israelites they had to appear before the Lord in Jerusalem. Simply the passive form of the verb to see. They have to put in an appearance. They have to be seen by the Lord in the holy city. And it's not an option. This is a, this is a command performance. And they obviously had to go three times a year because those are the three times they had to pay their tithes. Then they give the thanks for the harvest and they pray for the rain and all the things that normally would go on. So three times a year they had to appear or to be seen by God in his sanctuary. And they didn't mind doing it because it was such a thrilling experience to go to the holy city at these great festivals. 
And the psalmist would say he was going up to Jerusalem to see the Lord. Again, this verb to see. He doesn't say that they're actually going to see the Lord, but they're going to see his power and his glory, evidence that the Lord was there. And what they would do is they would come up to Jerusalem, and any time they came to the sanctuary, and they would bring their sacrifice. It had to be the best that they could find. It had to be the perfect sacrifice that they would bring, um, firstborn animal, without blemish, whatever. And they would bring this sacrifice to give to the Lord. That was the whole purpose for going up. And they gave that This is up front, not after you do all your calculations. This is up front. No matter what you've got, you give the best to God. You give the best animal to God. You make sure it's firstborn. It's kind of like the family would pen it off as if it was going to enter it into the state fair competition. It's not going to be harmed. It's not going to be um, ill. It's going to be perfect. And that goes to the Lord. You take it to the sanctuary. But you give it in the sanctuary. Give your best as a sacrifice to God, trusting trusting that he will provide for what you gave. If you don't have many animals and the best, you kind of hoping for next uh, spring's breakfast, dinner, lunch, and week-long festivals. No, it goes to the Lord. And they had to bring their children up knowing this, this is what it means to sacrifice to God. You give your best to him. But you're not losing anything because when you give it to him, you are doing it in faith that he will provide for you more animals, more crops, more harvests, and whatever. And so the whole idea of the Lord providing became the, the symbol of their trust. We can't outgive God because his word is sure, he has promises, and we rest on those promises. Abram learned this earlier, not with a serious test like this. But you remember in Genesis 13, they came back from the land of Egypt where they had been down there because of the famine. And as they get into the land, the land is not sufficient to handle all of the animals and all of the people that belong to Lot and all of the animals and people that belong to Abram. So they said, lest we come to blows here, it's best for us to separate. And Abram is so magnanimous. He said to Lot, he said, you take, you go first, you choose. Um, whatever you want, you take it, I'll go the other way. Uh, I think we don't quite give enough time to think about the, the magnanimous nature of that. If I had been Abram, I would have said, you know, we've got to separate. But remember, God gave me the land, so you've got to go out somewhere else. No, he can give it all away. Because God promised it to him. And if he gives it away, he's not going to lose it because the promise will yet be fulfilled. And uh, Abram is willing to do that. He doesn't cling to things like a lot of us might do when, uh, when it seems like it's too much. But this is different. He asked for the son. And uh, Abram doesn't cling to him because it's more important to obey God than to... Protect what you cannot keep if God wants this child to be given to him. What did Abram sacrifice on Mount Moriah? Yeah, he killed, sacrificed the lamb, but what did he really sacrifice? He didn't kill Isaac. 
He sacrificed his own will. He had to surrender that before he ever made the trek to Moriah that uh, he is saying, not my will, but yours. You want you want Isaac? Uh, he's yours. You gave him to me. He is a supernatural way. And uh, I can't... Uh, I can't keep him if you want him back. And so he is surrendering his will. And that's what happened when people would sacrifice to God. Uh, they might be surrendering something very precious. They might be, might be even surrendering themselves uh, as they were giving themselves in the service of God. And I'm sure uh, Hannah had the same thinking. I'm giving my son Samuel to the Lord because uh, God said... Uh, you know, make a vow. I made a vow. He belongs to God. So sacrificing the best called for people to surrender their own will, their preferences, their their choices, and uh, give to God what he asked. And so this became a watchword to this passage for Israelite worship all the way through the Bible, that you go to Jerusalem because you need to appear before the Lord. And you go up there to see the Lord and know that he's there and witness all the great things he has done. But you must bring the best sacrifice that you have to sacrifice it to him. Uh, not your children, but your dearest possessions and your best offerings that you can have. And you do that trusting that the Lord will provide. And then you can go home and wait for the rains to come and the crops to grow. And so essentially... Um, you have uh, a pattern for them to follow. As you know from studying the Old Testament, they didn't always follow this pattern. Um, they uh, decided, and we'll talk about this on Wednesday, give God the crummy animals. I mean, we don't use them, and he's just going to burn them up, so why should we go out of our way to give them something really good? Well, unfortunately, that has reared its ugly head in a lot of religious groups that uh, anything's good enough for God? No, only the best is good enough for God, and that's what he's asking. We have two other passages here that belong to this chapter, and uh, I'll just turn to the first one. Uh, you can turn if you want. It's found in the book of Romans. Paul, when he cites from the Old Testament, does not proof text he understands the contexts and uses them correctly. And so we're in Romans chapter 8, where he is dishing out an awful lot of doctrine for us to follow. But if you take a look halfway through or down towards the end, in uh, verse 33 or so, somewhere in, we'll, we'll start reading anywhere in there. Verse 3, when, what then shall we say... In response to this, you can read the rest of the chapter to find out in response to what. But uh, in response to this, what shall we say um, who have been called according to his purpose? Uh, this is what he's just said. What shall we say then in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not freely along with him graciously give us all things? He is summarizing Genesis 22, but on the cosmic level, not on the simple Israelite faith. 
Because while Abraham did not withhold his son, which is what God said to him in Genesis 22, gave him up as a sacrifice, Paul says, let's, let's look at this in the bigger picture. Our Heavenly Father did not withhold his son, but freely gave him up for us as the atoning death for us and for our salvation. If he gave us his dearest possession, how shall he not also freely give us all things? Or to put it in another way, the Lord will provide. If he gave us his son, then he anything else is easy. He can provide for us. And it could be any number of spiritual things, any number of physical things, but the Lord will provide is the theme of Genesis 22, and it's what the apostle is camping on here in Romans 8. And the basis that the Lord will provide is clear, that um, the father didn't withhold his son and gave him up. And there's one other passage that is important to this. It's found in uh, John chapter 8. This is a little bit more of a challenge to deal with this passage, but I think I think it's still very important for us to connect it here. Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees, and it is not a nice conversation. They are accusing him in here of being illegitimate. We were not born of fornication, they say, because <laughs> they've heard some rumors about his birth. And Jesus' response is no. You are of your father, the devil. So this is not going to be a sharing of the minds. This is where there is real conflict. But as the chapter progresses, Jesus starts to make some very profound statements. Um, and towards the end of the chapter, verse 54, Jesus said, I glorify, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced uh, to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, we don't have any clear statement anywhere in the text of what he is referring to. But we know the facts. The fact is that in the gospel, especially in John, the day refers to the crucifixion. It was for that that he came into the world, and, and that was the climax of the whole incarnation. And uh, he's clearly saying, too, that Abraham uh, saw it. Well, what in the world did he see? I, I read so many commentaries that water this down to... Uh, Abram had some ideas about sacrifice in general. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that he rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. The only thing I can come up with, and uh, and I can't prove it, but I think it's the most plausible and correct, um, and if you don't agree with me, you will when we get to heaven. So we'll uh, <laughs> can ask Abram what he saw. I think it has to refer to Genesis 22. What else in Abram's life could this fit? Here he's on Mount Moriah. He has come up onto the mountain to sacrifice his son. He writes in the mountain of the Lord, it will be seen. And all of that um, 
goes way beyond his experience in Genesis 22. I think the Lord must have given Abram a little bit more of a vision than a ram caught in the thicket. I think Abram must have been given a little bit more insight than what is really told us in the chapter in Genesis 22. But Jesus says he saw it and he rejoiced. He may not have known all the details of the incarnation. He may not have known the details of the death of Christ. But he certainly knew that God was going to provide a sacrifice on that mountain that would be the epitome of all the other sacrifices that are made. Then, of course, remember in John 8, they get angry and say, well, you're not yet 50 years old. How do you know what Abram, how has he seen you? And, And that's where he's very clear. Before Abram was, I am. Christ is Yahweh. Christ was there. He knew what was going on in the mind of Abram. He knew what was going on in that sacrifice. And it's perfectly plausible that he gave Abram a little bit more insight, not the whole picture, but more insight that something very special is going to take place here where the Lord will make a provision and it would be uh, the fulfillment of this motto. And Christ seems to confirm that that's, that's exactly what happened. There's no other passage where that could fit as well as in Genesis 22. So we have here a confirmation of the faith of Abram because the rest of the chapter he receives the promises again. It's going to be through Isaac. He returns home. He has passed the test and God simply reminds him of the promises and confirms them. So confirmation for the faith of Abram. No wonder everyone who in the Old Testament was coming to true faith would be called the seed of Abraham, true believers, whether Jewish or not. But yet it also was a paradigm for the Israelite worship, that you go to the sanctuary, you appear before the Lord, you bring him the best sacrifice you can have, your dearest possession perhaps, the the thing that you prize the most, you give to God. That's the nature of sacrificial worship. It's surrender. But you do that knowing that you cannot outgive God, that he will provide, that he will bless if you do this faithfully. But we also know that this passage, understood by St. Paul, is typological of the death of Christ The father did not withhold the son. The son is going to go up onto Mount Moriah. Uh, He is going to be there to make the perfect sacrifice, which will be the atonement and the salvation for all of us. And therefore, the Lord will provide through his death much more than food for the next winter crops in the field. He will provide eternal life, eternal salvation uh, for all those who trust in that perfect sacrifice. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take the details of these texts of Scripture, burn them on our hearts, Father, so that we might never recover, that we might be changed into faithful worshipers, faithful Christians, and be able to Seek in every way possible to do the will of our Father in heaven because he gave his life for us in the Son. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you, Alan. Okay, am I on? No, I'm not. Eddie, here we go. Okay, we just have a couple of minutes for Q&A. So we'll take one from over here. If you'll take that over to Bob. And one from over here. Anybody over here? You all want to arm wrestle for it? Okay. Well, thank you. I'm not going to wait for heaven to agree with you. I'm going to agree with you right now on... Is that turned on? Okay. Can you hear me? So I, I'm not going to wait for heaven. I agree with you now on, on John chapter 8 and the, the uh, basis for that being uh, Genesis 22. Would you do also something similar with Hebrews 11 where Abraham was looking for uh, a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God? Would that also have a basis in his proverb of in the mountain of the Lord it will be provided? get this land and he knew right away especially since the days of Melchizedek that they the promised land the theocracy would have as its center Jerusalem mm-hmm. and uh, how much uh, with with going up to sacrifice Isaac Hebrews uh, reminds us because he considered God was able to bring him back from the dead mm-hmm. I think what Hebrews is saying is his his faith was that strong but I don't think uh, that Abram going up on the mountain would say to the two men, well, if I sacrifice my son, God will raise him from the dead and we'll come back. I don't think he pushed it that far. But he certainly knew more from the promises God gave to him and the events that occurred, what what was taking place. And, and he had to know at the end of his life, uh, he doesn't have the land. He has a cave. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have many nations. He has a few descendants. And yet he knows that... Uh, that something far greater lies ahead that God is going to do in order to be this uh, blessing to the whole world. Thank you. I had a guy in one class. He'd always raise his hand and he'd always preface it by saying, I would agree with you 98%. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dan. Yeah. Uh, Genesis 22. Thank you, Dan. Uh, do do you see any significance in the passage where Isaac says, "Where is the lamb?" and God provides a ram? Uh, probably from our perspective of the New Testament, but I don't think so in the old. Okay. Because they, I mean, they, they could offer a lamb at Passover. They could offer a goat. Um, they could offer steers and bullocks, and okay. they had quite a few, but. Uh, for for them, um, the sacrifice could even be a wild animal because Leviticus makes it very clear if you're out hunting and you kill a deer, you must shed its blood, pour it into the ground as an offering to God. So a life is relinquished, whatever kind of animal it happened to be, whether hunting or whether from your domestic farm. Do you think the significance for us would be that the ram is the mature uh, adult? A more parallel to Christ than a lamb? Probably, because okay. in the details, the same with Isaac carrying the wood up to the sacrifice. People have seen a connection to the cross. Uh, I think when you have typology, there is a limit to how many details you can press, but you still have to ask uh, why these particular terms are used, especially when... Uh, the Israelites would have seen and understood more than I think we do. 
like in Genesis, um, God clothes Adam and Eve after their um, sin. Doesn't ever say he killed an animal. Doesn't say that at all, except Leviticus. You've got to go back to Leviticus every time. Leviticus says the skins are given from the sacrifices to the Levites for income and for clothing. And so an Israelite reading that story, Cain and Abel, would know there, had, there was an animal sacrificed, and the skins go for clothing. Hey, he's clothing Adam and Eve here. So they would see the connections. We, we just don't take that step, but it's certainly plausible. And I think Moses explains an awful lot of these early stories in Leviticus and Numbers.